I agree. Great singing this morning, folks. We appreciate that. Great time of worship. Robert McQuilkin. Is that name familiar to you? That's okay. It wasn't familiar to me either. But I did come across that name in a book I've been reading. Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College from 1968 to 1990. His wife Muriel was suffering from the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease when he announced his resignation in a letter with these words. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me, and almost none of the time when I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror. That she, might, that she has lost me and always goes in search, of, search for me when I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of the announcement of my resignation in chapel. The decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Don't all of us long to be loved and cared for by someone like that? If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. We're coming to the end of John chapter 14, so I'm going to take this opportunity to read through the entire chapter this morning. It's going to be long, but uh, it's a chapter that has grown to become a favorite of mine. The Gospel of John. So stand with me if you're able for the reading from God's Word, beginning at John chapter 14 and verse 1. And if it becomes too long, don't be afraid to sit down. 
Verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, I. now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, the psalmist declares your word to be to be perfect, reviving the soul, trustworthy, making wise the simple, right bringing joy to the heart, clear, giving insight for the living. Thank you for this episode in the life of Jesus, preserved for our benefit. As we study this passage this morning, may it revive our souls, make us wise, bring joy to our hearts, especially to those who are wrestling with hearts that are troubled. May it give us insights for living so that we'll live lives that please you, bring you glory, reflect the image of Christ, further your plans and purposes here on earth. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God or believe in God. Believe also in me. You know, troubled hearts are debilitating. They leave us paralyzed, unable to move forward. Troubled hearts encourage us to to withdraw, to retreat. They push us towards isolation, where then we become vulnerable to those who will come alongside and use us for their own purposes or to fulfill their own appetites. Troubled hearts, they... They rob us of confidence. They're distracting. They impair our rational abilities. They make us so that we find it hard to remain focused. We find ourselves imagining and preoccupied with the worst possible scenarios. Have you ever been there? Perhaps there are some personalities, when their hearts are troubled, they step in, lean in, try to take control. Lead, follow, or get out of my way. 
those type of people. They usually get frustrated and then angry as they try to control the things that are actually beyond their ability to control. Troubled hearts. They're debilitating. And here in John chapter 14, Jesus' closest companions had troubled hearts. And, and I would add, for good reason. Remember, two and a half years ago, they've left everything. Homes, vocations, families, friends, all those things that we'd count comfortable. They're now huddled in the intimacy of this upper room in the city of Jerusalem, far from home, preparing to celebrate the Passover festival with their friends, their ministry companions, huddled in the intimacy of this upper room, preparing for that feast of the Passover. Just Jesus and the twelve, the crowds have been left behind. And Jesus had just performed that unprecedented, extravagant display of love for him when he removed his outer garments, picked up a towel and a basin and began to wash their feet, each one. But then, during the meal, he announced that one of them in the room would betray him, hand him over to his enemies. And that he was going to depart, leave them, and they wouldn't be able to follow, not one of them. And thirdly, finally, Jesus predicted that Peter, their gregacious spokesperson, would deny even knowing him three times before the sun would rise the very next morning. Can you imagine? I think if you and I were part of that group in the upper room that night, we might have troubled hearts too. Jesus' directive is found in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And he restates the same directive again in verse 27. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, that's really easy to say, isn't it? But Jesus then goes on to offer an alternative. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he supported that directive. We've looked at each of these. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me because of the hope of heaven. In verses 2 through 6. Because of what you know about our Father who is in heaven. In verses 8 to 14. And then last week, because of Jesus' promised help from heaven. In verses 15 to 24. The hope of heaven, knowing the Father who is in heaven, and the promise of help from heaven, was intended to enable his disciples to exchange their 
troubled hearts for belief in God, belief also in Jesus. That brings us to the passage that we want to focus on this morning. John chapter 14, verses 25 through to the end of verse 31. In these verses, John chapter 14, Jesus discloses some benefits attached to his departure. Jesus cared for his disciples whose hearts were troubled by sharing some benefits related to his departure. And what makes this so exceptional is that Jesus is just a few short hours away from the most physically excruciating, painful, inhumane, torturous treatment that a human being could ever be forced to endure. Beatings, slaps in the face, spitting, a crown of thorns driven into his skull, and then death by crucifixion. Suspended on a wooden cross with nails driven through his hands and feet. Not to mention the spiritual torment. Humiliated, cursed, rejected, abandoned, and forsaken in order to bear the sins of the whole world. Think about it. Jesus knew what awaited him. And yet, here in the privacy of an upper room, we find him caring for his disciples whose hearts were troubled. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. Jesus shares four benefits related to his departure. Four benefits that the eleven could anticipate in spite of his imminent torturous departure. Benefit number one, a promise to be fulfilled. As a result of Jesus' imminent torturous departure, his disciples could anticipate the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Did you notice that but at the beginning of verse 26? It's introducing a contrast. But what is being contrasted in verse 26? Jesus' teaching ministry with the Holy Spirit's teaching and reminding. He will teach you all things. That sounds pretty comprehensive to me. All things, and not only that, 
but he has the ability to bring to your remembrance all that I taught you. Jesus is suggesting that there is something better awaiting them. The Holy Spirit is going to bring some tremendous advantages. By the way, this is the same helper that Jesus had referred to back in John chapter 14, verse 16, when he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The first benefit that Jesus' disciples could anticipate was the fulfillment of a promise, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that is exactly what happened. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1 for just a moment. Beginning at verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2 of Acts chapter 1. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles, that's the eleven, remember, whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, that's not for me to say, but look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And then look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. There appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Five of those in the room that day, five of the eleven, would go on and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would contribute, would become contributors to the New Testament scriptures. The Spirit of God teach them all things and bring to their remembrance. Benefit number one, a promise to be fulfilled. Benefit number two, a peace to be granted. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or let it be fearful. This has to be one of the greatest longings of the human heart. 
and yet the most elusive at the same time. Listen to these statistics. Of the last 3,500 years of human history, fewer than 300 could be called warless. More than 8,000 treaties have been signed and broken during that time. Little wonder that one cynic has defined peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everyone stands down in order to reload. How sad is that? Jesus is prepared to grant a peace that this world can never deliver. I was 17 years old when I sat listening to a preacher explain the difference between heaven and hell. This is what the Bible says about heaven, and all I can remember him is reading scripture verses and giving just a short explanation. And this is what the Bible says about hell. Again, giving scripture verses with a short explanation. Bang, bang, bang. Then he closed his message by quoting 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the testimony, or this is the record, or the report, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And then he invited anyone who didn't know the Son of God to come to the front of the auditorium. And they began to sing, just as I am, of course. At that point, I was in torment. I knew that I should, but the excuses just flooded into my mind. All kinds of excuses. The service finally ended and we were set free. I think there were bubbles of sweat on my forehead and I escaped. But the restlessness that began within me during that service did not end. In fact, finally at 4 a.m. I got out of my bed and knelt down beside my bed to the best of my ability, I admitted that I was a sinner. I asked God to forgive me, and I said that I really wanted to live differently. I wanted to live my life in a way that would please him. And at that moment, a sense of peace flooded into my life that I would say was almost physical. I got up from my knees and went to bed. 
absolutely convinced that if I didn't wake up, I'd wake up in heaven. Now, since that night, I've been through all kinds of experiences. Good, really good times. And then difficult, challenging times. But through them all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that sense of peace has never left me. Not once. And in my opinion, that has to be one of the greatest benefits of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is that peace that Jesus was asking his disciples to anticipate in spite of his imminent, torturous departure. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. This wasn't an external peace, but a confidence in the relationship with God that will remain with them despite the outward circumstances that awaited them down the path of their lives. Benefit number one, a promise fulfilled. Benefit number two, a peace to be granted. Benefit number three, a promotion to be realized. Look at verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If, I loved, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. There are a couple of clarifications that need to be made here. First, that clause, if you love me. We addressed that last week, remember? In verse 15 it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I suggested that Jesus wasn't questioning their love for him, but suggesting that their love for him would empower them, propel them, motivate them, give them a desire to keep his commandments. I would suggest a similar interpretation here. Jesus was suggesting that their love for him could empower them to celebrate Instead, even in light of the immediate events that were going to result in his death and crucifixion, but ultimately to his promotion. I've recently sat with someone who has a genuine faith. She's walked with God for a long time. She's not perfect, but she's definitely forgiven. And she just recently received a terminal diagnosis. She's now facing the end of her life. As we sat and she spoke of her excitement about going to heaven, seeing Jesus and loved ones who've preceded her in death. In fact, she would mention them by name. But I have to admit, it was 
hardly making it easier for loved ones that sat nearby. A husband, children and grandchildren, extended members of her family. Surely we can identify with, with Jesus' disciples. Their desire to hang on to what they have in front of them. Their troubled hearts as they contemplated Jesus' departure. The words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a, a time to die, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. But for genuine believers, there is a difference, according to the Apostle Paul. You will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We grieve, for sure. But with the hope of heaven before us. Jesus reminded his disciples that he was returning to his Father who was in heaven. The second phrase that's needing clarification is found at the end of verse 28. For the Father is greater than I. How is that possible? Well, Jehovah Witnesses and Unitarians and Arians, they grab, it, grab onto that verse and say, there you go. Jesus is less than God. Arius was a heretic in the early church who denied Jesus' full deity. But Jesus is not speaking ontologically here. He wasn't talking about his essential being, his, his nature. He had already affirmed repeatedly that he and the Father are one. Remember how the book of John begins? John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? John chapter 20, verse 28. Remember Thomas? He said, I won't believe until I can put my hands in, in, your hole, in the holes in your hand, the wound in your hands and the wound in your side. Jesus granted him permission and Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't correct him. Turn with me for just a moment to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, 
and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Notice the progression there. Emptied himself, humbled himself, and then God highly exalted him. Jesus was God dressed in human flesh, but as a man, notice verse 31 in John chapter 14, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Jesus was here speaking of his incarnation. And while dressed in human flesh, he released that equality with God and he humbled himself in order to secure a way of redemption for all who would respond to his invitation. Believe in God, believe also in me. Following his death and resurrection, Jesus indeed ascended into heaven according to Acts chapter 1 and was highly exalted. And that was foremost in Jesus' mind as he spent this time, was addressing his disciples in that upper room with troubled hearts. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 provides the following explanation who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus was not asking them to do anything that he was not willing to do. Standing in the path of a tsunami wave of pain and suffering, he invited his disciples to join him as he joyfully anticipated a reunion with his Father in heaven. Benefit number one, a promise fulfilled. Benefit number two, a peace to be granted. Benefit number three, a promotion to be realized. And benefit number four, a purpose to be accomplished. Look at verses 29 to 31. Now I've told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing on me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. If you have a, head, if you have a pen handy, and you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you may want to circle or underline two um, transition words. In verse 29, so that, when it happens, and then in verse 31, you'll notice again, so that the world may know. Those are purpose statements. In verse 28, Jesus saw the fulfillment of his previous predictions as fulfilling growth in his disciples' faith in him. By disclosing what was to happen before it happened, 
and then having it happen exactly how he said it would happen, that would encourage their faith, their belief in him. And John's gospel is all about emphasizing faith or belief or trust. In fact, remember John's purpose for writing this fourth account of the life and ministry of Jesus. John chapter 20, verse 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Both Jesus and the Apostle John viewed building faith or growing belief of genuine followers of Jesus as a priority. Look now at the next so, so that statement. So that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. I like those Motel 6 commercials. Have you seen those? Remember those for Motel 6? They always end up the same way. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll leave the light on for you. <laughs> well, Jesus, who claimed to be the light of the world, in John chapter 8, verse 12, always leaves the light on for us. That's what he's doing here so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. You see, Jesus' imminent, torturous departure was not a defeat. It was not a defeat. It's an act of obedience in keeping with God's redemptive plan and purposes. But folks, make no mistake about it. This is a dead man walking. And he's walking with his eyes wide open into an imminent, torturous departure. The words of John Piper, the suffering of the utterly innocent and infinitely holy Son of God in the place of utterly undeserving sinners to bring us to everlasting joy is the greatest display the glory of God's grace that ever was or ever could be. And what should absolutely blow our minds is that when he's facing his own imminent, torturous death, we find Jesus preoccupied with caring for disciples whose hearts are troubled. Because troubled hearts are debilitating. And by caring for his disciples whose hearts were troubled, Jesus God dressed in human flesh revealed a God who cares. God cares. He cared for Israel. He called Moses in response to their suffering 
under a brutal Egyptian slavery. He responded to their cries in the wilderness by providing water to drink and manna to eat. He preserved them supernaturally. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5 reports, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot for 40 years. Those are good pair of shoes. He protected them from their enemies all along the way. We see God's care displayed in his relationship with Israel. The Psalms speak of God's care. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Why do you care for us as you do? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Surely, goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. Psalm 46.1, God is is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. The Psalms are full of expressions that reveal a God who cares. Turning to the New Testament, we discover Jesus preached of God's care. Allow me to read just a short excerpt from Jesus' sermon manuscript recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Listen to Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 33. Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God cares. Finally, a verse that comes out of a memory pack that we're working through in our early Tuesday morning Scripture Memory Bible Study Group. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. There it is, folks. Not only does God care, but God cares for you, and for you, and for you, and for me. Jesus cared for his disciples, whose hearts were troubled, by sharing some benefits that related to his imminent, torturous departure. In doing so, he revealed a God who who cares. Not only does God care, but he cares for you, and he cares for me. Even when we don't feel like he does, even those times when we 
feel abandoned, left alone. Feelings are absolutely real, but they're untrustworthy. Trust God's word because he cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. Just as Jesus cared for his disciples whose hearts were troubled, just as Robertson McQuilkin cared for his wife, we all need someone to care for us, especially, especially when our hearts are troubled. We have a God who cares. And he wants to care for you and for me. Will you let him? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Father, as we believe in God, believe also in Jesus. We can then say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect me. They comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you for the spirit that lives within each and every true believer who is trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And because of that relationship, we have peace with God and can declare with confidence, it is well with my soul. Regardless of our external and internal circumstances and pressures, through the good times and the difficult, challenging times, the truth remains. It is well with my soul. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.